Welcome to today's podcast with Crosspoint Church, where we share the gospel and we share our lives. With so many fun and new exciting things going on at church, we want you to be in the loop. So make sure that you check out our Facebook page and that you check out our website at www.crosspointwaverly.com. And now for today's message. Well, good morning, everybody. So, so glad that you're here today in person, and thanks to those of you who are joining us online. And I tell you, I just love the moment that just happened. For introverts, you're like, oh, I hated it. But I'll just tell you, you know, like I just love seeing each of you reaching out, turning around, talking to those that are here, and just loving on one another. How encouraging today to, uh, to see that. It, I, we missed you guys last week. Eric and I were at a conference in Nashville, and Pastor Dan did a phenomenal job preaching last week. Let's express our appreciation to him. We've come back filled up, fired up, and ready to go, and so, so grateful for the message that he preached, and so grateful, PG, for, uh, for that moment that you shared today, as well as just the reminder that it was three years ago that, that we had this conversation, and I think what really sealed the deal was the game was in Decorah, and we introduced you to Mabe's Pizza, and so you were like, if they've got Mabe's Pizza an hour away, you know, this has got to be God's will for us. But uh, we were joking this week and talking about how he made the commitment in, in September, but he didn't begin until the end of December. And it felt like an eternity. You know, we're like, is he ever going to get here? And we're so glad that you and Miss Darlene said yes. They, they both lead our children's ministry. She leads the early childhood ministry and as a volunteer. And we're so grateful. Spends a number of hours each week setting up the rooms, recruiting volunteers, overseeing all of that. And I just want you to know how much we love and value and appreciate both of you. Would you express your appreciation to them? And I said all of that after you just announced to the church that I'm going to have to kiss a pig in a couple of weeks. You know, like I'm, I, I asked them, I said, hey, can we go back to COVID days where masks are mandatory and I just have to, you know, wear a mask that day for the kissing of the, I don't even, I've never kissed a pig. I don't even know. Y'all pray for me. I think we should have an amount that people give that then would keep me from having to kiss the pig. <laughs> all right, let's go. Um. This morning we're continuing our series through the book of Galatians, and I hope that on Sundays that you're taking notes, that you're writing the scriptures that down that we're looking at each week, that you're writing down some of the points, and that you're processing them in your personal devotion times throughout the week and allowing the Holy Spirit to just really settle into your heart the words that, that are being spoken. For those of you who are part of sermon-based small groups, obviously you get another chance to process this. And uh, the book of Galatians is actually a letter to the churches in Galatia. And Paul starts out, uh, he starts this church and, and gets it planted, and then he moves on and he, he, he continues the church development process and the discipleship process in these believers by writing letters to them. And so word had gotten back to him that there were a group of Judaizers who had come in, in Paul's absence and began to add things to the gospel. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul gives them hope. And then he really lays into them quickly, he lays into them for quickly believing in a gospel that wasn't the gospel at all. And he said to them, Jesus is enough. 
Back then and today, Jesus is enough. And these Judaizers were saying that Jesus wasn't enough, which is not the message of the gospel. Pastor Dan preached last week from chapter 2. And in chapter 2, Paul tells them that Jews had a a code of conduct and expectations that they were to live up to. And he asked them this question. He said, how can you force or expect a Gentile to live up to the standard that you're not even living up to yourself. And he addressed the hypocrisy that was going on in the church. And I think for us, even today, like it's easy for people to point fingers and to place expectations and behaviors on lost people, expectations of behaviors of lost people. And sometimes the very people who are pointing their finger and laying out those expectations inside the church aren't even living by those standards. And so he was addressing hypocrisy, and we still need to address hypocrisy in the church. We need to make sure that we're living up to, uh, to the standard that God has for us. Finally, Pastor Dan so powerfully communicated last week that we're justified through faith in Jesus, not by works of the law. Today, we're going to pick up in Galatians chapter 3, and verse number 1, Paul lovingly and sternly says to them, y'all are really dumb for real. Look at it. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He literally starts out this letter by calling them foolish. What would your response have been if you were receiving this letter? Those with problems of, with authority would be like, excuse me? Who does Paul think he is? I don't have to put up with this. I don't have to take this. I'm not reading the rest of this letter calling me foolish. Who, who is this guy? For those of you with a hungry heart, for those of you who want to please God with everything, you would be like, Uh Uh-oh, what's coming next? What do we mess up on? Where did we miss the mark? Where do we need to repent? And he goes on to challenge them about the practice of reverting back to the law. Before we move any further in this passage, this morning I want us to take just a minute and talk about the law. In the first five books of the Bible, there are 613 commandments. I'm not going to ask that you would tell me all of them today. 613 The Mosaic law referenced in Galatians includes three parts, the Ten Commandments, the ordinances, and the worship system. In the book of Exodus, there's this man named Moses who's leading a nation called the Israelites, and they have this amazing supernatural moment on the side of a mountain where God literally inscribes Ten Commandments into some stones for Moses. He inscribed these commandments, you shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. These are ten commandments that God gave to Moses on the side of the mountain, and he supernaturally inscribed them into stone. And some of the laws that are found in the Old Testament, like the Ten Commandments, are still to be followed today. The the Judaizers were teaching that observing the rites of the Jewish religion, such as circumcision and ceremonial law with all of its feast days, was still necessary. And the early believers wrestled through this. For instance, there were dietary restrictions that believers were wrestling with with Paul. and, And they're like, can we eat meat? Can we not eat meat? And Paul's like, 
you can eat meat, but if it causes your brother to stumble, don't do it in front of your brother. Like he, he's encouraging them to go to the heart of the law, which is love of God and love for others. And so then the other thing that they were wrestling with, as we see even here in Galatians, is the idea of circumcision or the practice of circumcision. And so these Judaizers were saying that the Gentile men needed to be circumcised in order to truly be saved. And that's kind of what started all of this for Paul to write the letter and be like, what are you doing? Like the men in your community need Jesus and telling them to do this is not going to lead them to Jesus and it's unnecessary right and so he's saying don't be adding stuff to it Jesus is enough remember what happened when you confessed Jesus as your savior and the spirit of God came to reside in your heart that was enough you're not saved because you followed circumcision or you followed the Jewish laws you're saved by faith in Jesus and so Paul tells him it's, it's not necessary. And so as we wrestle through this, we wrestle through the idea of law and grace. And the goal through these conversations is not to ask what we can get away with. Right? God's concerned with our heart. And his standard for all believers is holiness. It's always been his standard. And it will always be his standard. God's standard for believers is holiness. And so as we think about grace, grace isn't to enable bad behavior. It's grace until you overcome the bad behaviors or you get through it. And so grace isn't an excuse to keep on sinning. Paul says, should I, should I continue to sin so that grace could abound all the more? And his response is, absolutely not. No, we should live holy lives for God. But there are tension points that we need to discuss and acknowledge. The tension points between law and grace. And Paul talks about it in Galatians, and so we're going to dive into the tension. Culture tells us that we don't need the law, that we don't need holiness, that we, we have grace. And so we don't need that old-fashioned stuff. All of that was before Jesus. And the faulty part of that thinking is Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven." What we're not going to discover in these passages is permission to break the law or see what we can get away with. And so let's pick up in verse number 13 of chapter 3. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. 
Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Let's pray this morning. God, we thank you so much for your word and for the power that it has to transform our lives. We ask that over the next few moments that we would sense a demonstration of your spirit's power. Would you open up our ears to hear, our hearts to receive, and our minds to understand what you would have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, where are the rule followers at? Would you just slip up your hands? They're easily identifiable because when asked to do something, they do it immediately. They raise their hand, the rule followers across the room. Who are the, who are the rule breakers in the room this morning? Would you raise your hand? Thank you for following the rules there to just identify uh, yourself. There are some of you who are wired to follow every single rule. Like you love rules. And so you just want to follow all of them. And there are some of you who are not wired to follow rules. And last week when Erica and I were in Nashville, we walked everywhere and uh, we walked from the hotel to the convention center. And when we looked at our steps, we walked a total of 44 miles in those few days that we were in Nashville. I know, right? Like some of you are like, you don't look like it. Well, I'm telling you, I did. And my feet are telling me that I did. My watch and my phone tells me that I did. And so 44 miles. And I don't know if you've walked in a larger city than Waverly in a downtown area, but there are a lot of intersections. And to get from point A to point B, in a downtown grid, you got to cross a lot of intersections. And my wife is a rule follower. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. We would come to the intersection, and we would stand there waiting for the white hand to appear on the pedestrian sign to let us know that it is now not against the law for us to cross the street. There was a sign in Nashville that said, please make eye contact with the person before you walk in front of them. I was like, well, that's good. Uh, what a great rule. To, anyway, so I'm telling you that there were multiple times. I, I, I don't need a white hand on a sign to let me know that I can cross the street. And so there were times when I'd be like, all right, let's go. And she finally come and join me across the street. Don't be like that. (laughs) She's hardwired to follow the rules. And I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm just saying we had somewhere to be. And if we had to wait for the white hand to let us know that we could cross every time, we weren't going to make it. And so I'm just saying if there aren't cars coming or if I can play Frogger across the intersection and not get squashed like a squirrel on one of these Waverly streets, I'm going to make it across. 
There are some of you who are hardwired to follow the rules, and some of you are hardwired to do the things that you're told not to do. If I threw up a sign in the auditorium this morning and I told you not to look up at the sign, there are some of you who would make eye contact with me for the remainder of this message because you're like, I can't even be associated with those rule breakers. Like, I can't even be associated with thinking that somehow somebody would would see me looking up. There are others of you who are looking up right now. I didn't put anything up there. Today, as we dive into Galatians chapter 3, we're going to see that in our failures and in our inability to obey God's law, there is grace. And Paul wrote this letter because there are some teachers that are telling people that Paul had not told them the whole gospel. And in chapter 1, he lays out the good news of grace that Jesus died for our sins. And then in chapter 2, he tells them and subsequently us that we're not saved by the law, we're saved by faith in Jesus. And now in chapter 3, we see that Jesus took on the curse of the law so that by faith in him we might be set free. Galatians chapter 3, verse number 10 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul is writing contrary to what the Judaizers are teaching. He's saying that the law can't justify, it can only condemn. And we're saved by faith in Jesus. We receive the promised spirit through faith. We're called sons and daughters of God because of our faith in Jesus. And Paul is saying in this verse, it's impossible for the law to save you. If you try to live like this, you're under a curse because you're going to break one and you're a lawbreaker. And since you've broken one, you're under a curse. And what Paul is saying is Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. And then he demonstrates how this message is not new, but that it predates the law. The promise of righteousness through faith was made to Abraham before God ever gave Israel the law. In verse number 15, he says, very conversationally, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. If this is true, if it's always been about grace, then why did God give the law at all? The law was given because of human sinful nature. The law was given for the purpose of providing a guide to living in the presence of a holy God. In verse number 19, Paul even asked this question. He said, why then the law? He says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The law provided a framework for how one should live while waiting on the promise of God to send a redeemer. By giving his law, he was giving us a glimpse into his heart. God loves and cares about people. 
He wants what's best for them. He wants a meaningful and loving relationship with his creation. And the law shows us that 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 is what God wants, and it also reveals that we can't make it happen on our own. Some view the law of God as being a joy kill and actually view it as the opposite of why it was true and why it was intended. I don't know about you, but in our house, we've had rules for our kids, and we have different rules for our kids today. The rules we have in our house give a glimpse into our hearts, right? The rules that we have for our kids show that we love them and that we care about them. Parents who love their kids will institute rules that will act as a framework to educate their kids and to protect them. The rules are to keep them safe and to teach them how to live. So rules like don't touch the hot stove might seem like an obvious rule for adults, but to a kid who's never touched the hot stove, it's not obvious. And so I'll just tell you, we had that rule as parents in our house. I know, right, how constrictive, you know, like how could you crush a kid's spirit by telling them not to do something? You know, how could you tell them not to touch a hot stove? That rule demonstrated the heart of love that we have for our kids, right? We knew that if they touched the hot stove, they were going to get burnt. And the same with look both ways before you cross the street. Well, do you not trust me? Y'all don't have teenagers yet. Dot <laughs> dub. <laughs> right? Why do we have the, why do we tell kids to look both ways before they cross the street? It's not because of our lack of trust in our children. It's not because we think that intentionally they're gonna do something dumb. It's because of other people. So I don't know if you've walked recently on Cedar Lane. I have because we, my wife walks me frequently. <laughs> and if my kids were younger, right, you know what I would say to them? Look both ways because that speed limit of 25 is merely a suggestion nowadays. Like, it's like a drag strip sometimes. Some of y'all need to slow down. Right, there have been times when we're walking the dog and people are texting and driving and we get buzzed. And I'm not talking about buzz like that. You know what I'm saying? I'm talking about somebody whizzing by because they're distracted looking at their phone. And so when we tell a kid to look both ways before they cross, it's not because we're trying to stifle them or trying to crush their spirit. It's because we know that there are dangers out there of people that might not be looking out for them. And so we don't want them to cross the road and inadvertently get squashed because somebody was texting and driving or not looking out for a kid. And so children need to be instructed so that they understand the consequences of living in a fallen world. And the law functions the same way. It's given for the same purpose, to help us flourish and not die. Right? God's not trying to crush us by giving us the law. It's it's to help us flourish and not die. And he used it to set the people of Israel apart as holy to God. This was the distinctive. And in verse number 25, it says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. As with our rules that we had for, uh, as parents for our kids, the law was given in anticipation of when the one to whom it was given would mature. So this happens as our kids grow up. I don't have to have the same rules for my kids today that I had back then because it's not the rule that keeps them from hurting themselves. It's the life experience and the knowledge that keeps them from doing that. 
right? I don't have to tell my almost 19-year-old son today and my 17-year-old daughter, look both ways before you cross the street. Like at this point, it's instilled within them. That law is written upon their heart. That rule is there uh, because of life experience and knowledge. In our relationship with God, it requires the gift of new life in Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse number 10, it's not going to appear on the screen, but it says, The Lord declares that I will put my laws into, your, into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul makes it clear that the law cannot save you, and it can't save anybody else. When I was a teenager, I was part of a program called Evangelism Explosion. And just out of curiosity, have any of you ever heard of Evangelism Explosion? Okay, like would you just, okay, like one person, cool, two people, three. All right, I see those hands. Uh, we would visit people who had attended our church. So just envision on Tuesday nights, 100 people would gather. I don't know that the math will do this. Around 100 people would gather in a room. We would spend some time in prayer and then the modern day connect cards that you would fill out would be given uh, at the church and would be divvied up among these hundred people who would break into groups of three and go around the city of Memphis to people's houses, right? And, and so there, that was the first set of lists. The second set of lists was called the hit list, okay? And the hit list where for some of y'all's family members that you don't want to talk to about Jesus, but they need Jesus, and so can somebody please go to their house and talk to them about Jesus? Now, this was over 20 years ago. I cannot imagine doing this today. I can't imagine that we did it 20 years ago. We would go knock on these people's doors at night, of course, right at dinner time, so they were super excited to see us. And sometimes we would get invited into people's houses and we would have some conversation with them for a little bit and we'd chit-chat with them. And then ultimately it would lead into this leading question. And there were two questions that we would ask in these meetings. And the first was this, if you were to die tonight, do you know for sure that you're going to be with God in heaven? If you were to die tonight, do you know for sure that you're going to be with God in heaven? And I'll just say this morning, if you don't know the answer to that question, I hope that by the end of this service today that you'll know the answer to this question. If somebody said no, then you had this follow-up question of like, well, would you like to know? Would you like to have certainty? And then we would present the gospel to them. So let me talk to you about the hit list. And I'm smiling because in my mind, it's funny today. It wasn't funny then. My parents were on the hit list. My parents were not saved until I was 16 or 17 years old. And so I'll never forget these three people, and they would send the top dogs of Evangelism Explosion to our house, you know, because my parents would give them the answers that nobody was prepared for, right? So the question we asked, like, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Nope. Okay, what do we do with that? You know, I remember as a kid, like, my heart was grieving, and so it sounds kind of funny, but it's not, but as a kid, I'm grieving because I love Jesus, I want my parents to love Jesus, and here's an opportunity, and I'm like, here, they're going to reject it one more time, and so, would you go to heaven or go to hell? Well, we're going to go to hell. Cool. Well, would you like to go to heaven? Nope. Would you, would you, y'all, I'm telling you, 
And so my parents are saved today. They're lovely people. Again, they got saved when I was 16, 17 years old. And uh, I'm very, very grateful for that. And it wasn't because somebody knocked on their house. It was because the Holy Spirit stirred their hearts and drew their hearts to them in the right moment. And so today, if you have family members that aren't serving Jesus, I'd encourage you to keep praying for them, believing that one day that they'll turn their hearts to God. And so the people would ask this question, would you go to heaven or not? And, and so then if somebody said yes, I know for sure that I would go to heaven. Then the second question was, if God were to ask you why I should let you into heaven, what would you say? If God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Think about that for a minute. I'm not going to ask that you would answer that out loud, but think about what your response would be. We heard a variety of responses I kid you not, people would say things like, my mom and dad were good Christians. Some thought that their parents, because of their parents' vibrant faith, that that would be enough to get them into heaven. Other responses might be because I was baptized as an infant or I went through confirmation or I go to church sometimes. Or others would say, well, he would let me into heaven because I'm a good person. They would say things like, I've, I've never killed anybody, never stolen anything, never cheated on my wife. And inevitably, they would list off the big sins in their mind, which generally the big sins that people talk about are the ones that they don't struggle with. And somehow they would think because they hadn't committed the sins that they thought were the big sins that they were a good person. We were trained for these responses, and, uh, and, and so here's the reality. There are some of you that as you thought through your response, if God were to ask you that question, your responses are very similar. And in Galatia, the Judaizers were telling new converts that these are great responses. You know, be a good person. Just follow the law. And I'm telling you this morning, that those are not the answers that God is looking for, and Paul was addressing this in this passage. We go back to verse number 10. He's referencing a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse number 26, that says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. Paul writes, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And again, if you're guilty of breaking one law, you're guilty of breaking all of the law. And so then the curse of the law is upon you. And we're not perfect. The only person who's ever been perfect is Jesus. And so the breaking of only one command, even once, brings a person under the cross. And Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse number 9, None is righteous, no, not one. So for those of you who are looking for a short verse to memorize, there you go, Romans chapter 3, verse number 9, none is righteous, no, not one. So when people would answer the question that they're a good person, we would point them back to the Bible and say, "Mm, I don't know about that. We're not saved because we haven't broken some of the laws. It's it's not because we haven't murdered or stolen anything or not kept the Sabbath day that makes us righteous. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 8, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one could boast. It's not your good works or your ability to not break some of the laws that get you into heaven. 
Some of you have a view of, if you would say, maybe this would be your response. You would say, well, God, the reason why I should make it into heaven is because the good things that I did in this life outweighed the bad. Right? We don't earn God's favor or forgiveness by doing something good. Right? We earn God's favor and forgiveness by confessing that Jesus is our Lord and confessing our sins to him. There's no assurance that we can have in the flesh that we're good enough people to think that a holy God would think that we're special and roll out a red carpet to uh, let us into heaven in our own merit. It's all because of Jesus. And the right answer to the question, if God were to ask you why he should let you into heaven, would be to go back to the word. And what does the Bible tell us? The Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, then we'll be saved. There's our entry pass. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Jesus. And so I hope that today that, that you don't leave here thinking, oh, I just need to do more good to outweigh the bad, or I just need to strive and try harder to not do bad, and then somehow if I strive hard enough and do more and I do all of this, then somehow I can earn God's forgiveness and acceptance and, 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 and uh, invitation into heaven. It's not how it works. And so Paul addresses this. It's what he's trying to convey to the believers in Galatia. He's trying to convey that their hope for all of us is not in man, but in Christ who redeemed us from the curse of the law. There are some of you in your rules, personalities, you're like, oh, if there were just a hundred more rules in the Bible, then I could totally live a righteous life. I could so get it right. Can I tell you, another hundred rules isn't going to save you. Jesus saves. And Jesus said that the law can be summed up into two commandments. In Matthew chapter 22, verse number 36. He's asked this question, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. When we think about grace and we think about the law and, we, and the tension of those areas, it really goes back to the heart. And Jesus addresses our heart by saying that the most important and where it all starts is with our love for God. And when we become children of him, his law and his word is written in our hearts. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our heart and convicts us of things that are wrong. As we love God, then everything else flows out of that in our love for others. Loving God changes how we relate to God and it also changes how we relate to others. And I ask that you would bow your heads and close your eyes all across this room. Paul closes this 
this segment of the letter in verse number 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul instructs us today that our salvation is by faith in Jesus alone. And that what the law set out to do to point people and steward people's hearts towards Jesus was fulfilled in Jesus. And so today, again, his grace is not permission for us to continue to sin. His grace is grace until that sin is confessed and conquered in our lives. This morning, maybe there are some of you who are not children of God, that if somebody would have knocked on your door and asked you these questions, maybe you would boldly or sheepishly say to them, no, I'm not a follower of God. I, I, I don't expect to make it to heaven. And today, you say, you know what, there's this tug on my heart and the Spirit of God is drawing me towards Him and I wanna become a follower of Him today. Maybe there are others of you who at one time walked with God but you've turned your back on Him and you say, today I need to see my relationship restored back to Him. Just a moment, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's you, you say, I need to ask Jesus to come into my life for the very first time. Or you say, I need to see my relationship restored back to Him. When I count to three, why don't you slip up your hands all across this room. One, two, Three, lift them up all across this room. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. You can put them down. Are there others this morning? Thank you, God. Let's all stand. There were at least nine hands that went up this morning of people who need to ask Jesus to come into their life for the very first time or who need to see their relationship restored back to him. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And if you raise your hand, I want you to repeat it after me and mean it with everything that's within you. But know that you won't be praying this prayer alone, but that each of us in support of you will also be praying. Let's pray. Say, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for me. I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I've messed up. This morning I ask for your forgiveness. Come and be my Savior. Be my Lord. Take over every area. Take over every aspect. And help me from this day forward to live for you with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, with all of my strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give God praise for what he's done this morning. You know what, I don't ever want us to take for granted what God does on a Sunday morning. For as long as I can remember and for as long as I live, my commitment will be to preach the gospel and then to cast out the net and give people an opportunity to respond. And I'm just telling you, it's the grace of God upon our church that almost every week, somebody, becomes a follower of him. And so I don't want us to think that this is a formality. I don't want us to think that this is normal. It's supernatural what God has done. And so can we just take a moment right now and can we say, God, we don't think it's ordinary. 
We think it's spectacular. God, this morning our hearts are stirred as you've turned people's hearts back to you. Lord, we give you praise and we thank you for it. At the end of each service, we leave time for people to receive prayer. The prayer team's gonna make their way up to the front. I wanna pray over us. The worship team's gonna lead us in a song. And as soon as I say amen, if you've come here today needing prayer for anything, I'd ask that you would step out of your seat and come to both sides over here and let's pray. God, we thank you so much. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit in this room this morning that nine people, nine people would say, I no longer want to be a child of wrath. I want to be a child of God. So God, I pray that as they leave this place today, that you would continue to work in their hearts, that you would sanctify that that all of the stuff that's in their life that they've just confessed to you would be gone in the name of Jesus forever and that they would walk to be the new creation that you've called them to be. God, for those in the room this morning that struggle with law and struggle with rules and struggle with grace and the tension of all of this, Lord, I just pray that it would be said of all of us that our hearts were hungry for more of you, that our hearts wanted to live a holy life dedicated completely to you. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to guide us and direct us and lead us into all of the things that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope that this message was inspiring and encouraging. For more information about this message or about all things Crosspoint, check out our Facebook and head to our website at www.crosspointwaverly.com.